Oh, hi. Hi. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good. Guess what I bought last night? Uh, I cannot guess. Well, I had a little bit of wine um, and I bought a sewing machine. Oh, fantastic. Your granny will be so proud of you. I know. The hard part is getting fabric, actually. I put in an order for some fabric from a big a big store here in the US and uh, I woke up this morning to emails that they didn't have half the stuff I ordered because oh. everyone has gone on a bender of, of mass making now. So I may just have to cut up some of Elan's t-shirts. Oh yeah, well that's right, scrap material will do. <laughs> I have to Not call... Elan's uh, t-shirts are scrap, of course. <laughs> oh, I mean, some of them are. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon. On today's show, we're going to look at how Israel is responding to the pandemic. And later on, I'll be joined by Anshel Pfeffer, The Economist's Jerusalem correspondent and a columnist with Haaretz. But first this. So if you like our show, there's another new podcast I'm listening to that has unique perspectives on how the coronavirus is impacting all of us. From the science of sneezing to the psychology of hoarding. It's called Epidemic. In each episode, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist, and Ron Klein, the former U.S. Ebola czar, talk to the world's leading experts about how COVID-19 is changing our world. New episodes of Epidemic are out every Tuesday and Friday. You can listen to Epidemic wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll give it a try. So before we get to today's interview, I just want to let you know that we're changing things up with the show a little bit. This is going to be the last daily episode, but don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Starting next Monday, Don't Touch Your Face is going to become a weekly program. So what does that mean? Well, episodes are going to be a bit longer, probably around 25 minutes, and we'll feature more expert interviews, and that's going to allow us to go into greater depth about how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. If you've already subscribed, you don't need to do anything. That new weekly episode will drop into your podcast feed next Monday. And if you're not, make sure to hit that subscribe button now so that you don't miss out. And now back to the topic of today, which is Israel, where strict measures were implemented early on in the pandemic, which does seem to have slowed the spread of the virus. There have, however, been some serious outbreaks among Israel's ultra-Orthodox communities. To help me understand more, I spoke over Skype to Anshel Pfeffer, who is The Economist's Jerusalem correspondent and a writer for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. So Anshel, could you just start off by telling me what does the situation look like in Jerusalem? Are there people out in the streets? What can you do? What can't you do right now? Well, uh, Israel is in uh, semi-lockdown. You're allowed to uh leave your home to buy food or, or medications you can if you if you if you're essential to your place of work you're to travel to your place of work journalists are allowed out um beside everyone else's uh, advice to stay at home and to exercise only in a hundred meter radius of their home or not to meet in groups of more than two people so almost lockdown not quite Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the stricter ones, if you can't go 100 meters beyond your home for exercise, that's some of the stricter ones I've heard. Yeah. And so you had a piece out in in The Economist uh, last week um, about 
you know, the, the severity of the breakout in the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. Could you just explain to me a little bit why that is the case? Well, um, the ultra-Orthodox community, which uh, consists of about 12% of the Israeli population, uh, has been both for reasons of ideology and also reasons of lack of communications. I think the, the message really hasn't got through. You could say that in the neighborhoods and towns in which they live, especially for religious purposes, they were still gathering, whether it's for prayers right. or for study. Um, some of the rabbis uh, were saying, you know, this the study of Torah is something which protects you from all danger and therefore there's no reason to stop it. And mm. I think only the last three or four days, nearly all the rabbis have finally realize that this is a very uh, contagious disease and it's uh, something which uh, doesn't differentiate between people whether how religious or devout they are. Uh, part of it is due to the fact that they've suddenly re received news of how many uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews in, in in the United States have already taken ill or died from, from coronavirus. It's something which uh, the numbers of dead here in Israel is still around 30-something, so I think it, it didn't really sink in until, until a few days ago. And now, it, even though Bnei Brak is the ninth largest city in Israel, it has the second highest number of uh, of people uh, of, of people who have been confirmed as carrying the virus. So that gives us some kind of an idea of the, of the level of infection there. Is the government doing anything to try and slow and stop the spread in ultra-Orthodox communities? I say the government's response was also quite slow because the government put out already almost four weeks ago a quite strict, a quite strict guideline. They closed the schools down, but the community don't have television or radio or, or they don't go online. So, you know, you need to use different kinds of media, different kinds of messaging to get to them. And I think also there was a reluctance within the government to crack down this community, partly because of the, the, the political representatives of the community are in key positions in the Netanyahu government and they're, they're critical for for his coalition. So I think uh, there was a reluctance there to, to crack down. But also um, there's been a tendency, I think, for almost ever since Israel uh, came into existence 72 years ago, to not really intervene or interfere with what's happening within that community. And it's become almost an autonomous sort of uh, part of Israeli society. You know, they had their own separate education system and, and you know, they don't serve in, in the army. Israel has national conscription. They don't serve in the army. They, they have quite a separate existence. And you know, this was something that Israel could sort of deal with as long as it was a small community living by its own rules, but quite isolated and insular. But when, when you're dealing with a pandemic, you can't have one community making up its own rules while... You know, while, while the virus is being spread between different people, regardless of community lines. Mm -hmm. So last week, the United Nations praised Israel for its cooperation with the Palestinian Authority in their work to combat the coronavirus spread. Could you just give me an overview of, of how they are working together, what steps they're taking? You know, we've been seeing for, for years now uh, on the one hand, on the on the political level, on the, on the higher political level, a total breakdown of the of, of the diplomatic process between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, where, where the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and we've seen a state of warfare between Israel 
and the Hamas uh, fiefdom in, in the Gaza Strip. But at the same time, at lower levels, there has always been cooperation on on various things. And one of the things I think that there has that the cooperation has been relatively wouldn't call it healthy, but functioning has been on on health issues. You know, there's been uh, mm-hmm. Palestinian patients hospitalized in Israeli hospitals most of this period, and an exchange of uh, of training and, uh, and and equipment between Israel. Uh, and and the Palestinian Authority. At the same time, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as saying that the cooperation is great because there's still uh, is, you know, Israel is still the occupying power and therefore is is obligated to do it anyway. But like I said there is a level of cooperation, so that's something there is something, I suppose. Right. What's your sense of how they are preparing for an outbreak in in the Gaza in the Gaza Strip? Well, from what we know, the government and Palestinian health ministry there has prepared isolation areas, and especially for people returning from abroad, they're very quickly tested, and they're they're in an isolation area. Uh, the, the main worry is that if there is an outbreak and if the, and the virus does spread wider within Gaza, the the number of, um, of ventilators and uh, uh, you know uh, ICU units uh, prepared to to deal with serious cases of illness is very, very small. So I think right now they're, they're prepared for, for, for a low-level uh, incident, but not, not, for, not for anything major, uh, which we haven't seen yet. And on a, moving on to a different topic, what role did the pandemic play in resolving Israel's political standoff? Well, Israel's political setup is still unresolved as of yet because the, a new government hasn't yet been formed. But we do seem to be on the brink of of, of an agreement between Prime Minister Netanyahu and the man who, until last week, was leader of the opposition, Benny Gantz, who has, in, in principle, agreed to enter Netanyahu uh, coalition. They're still hashing out the last details of the of the deal. Um, and I think the, 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 the pandemic certainly played a role here because you know, Tanyao failed to win three, three consecutive elections over the last 12 months. The opposition also didn't really gain enough votes to, to form a government uh, against government uh, uh, and replace Tanyao. But I think Gantz was just tired of, of fighting election after election and some very, very toxic uh, campaigns and smear campaigns run against him. And uh, I think at this point, with the possibility of uh, of a major outbreak and the Israeli economy being shut down and people at home and so on, I think he felt that he just can't go on carrying on fighting against it. And now he needed to reach some kind of compromise. And uh, he he campaigned for the last year in three elections that he wouldn't serve under Netanyahu because of Netanyahu being indicted for for bribery and and uh, and fraud and and about to go on trial at some point. He said that he would not serve in his government and that his intention was to replace him. And now he's basically agreed for the next eighteen months to to serve under him. And his main excuse is that Israel needs. Uh, a stable government now after 15 months of, of, of having a temporary interim government. Uh, and Netanyahu didn't compromise. He He's mm. going to remain in power. He's made a, a, a potential compromise in agreeing 
to make way for Gantz in 18 months and and resign from the prime minister job and let Gantz replace him. Promises to do something in 18 months are like promises to say, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll go on a diet, tomorrow I'll, I'll stop smoking <laughs> and drinking. Um, you know, we'll wait and see when that if that ever happens. Mm. So last month, the Israeli government approved emergency measures for security agencies to enable them to track the mobile phone data of people who are suspected of having coronavirus. Do you think that this was necessary or are you concerned that this could be a slippery slope for, you know, for civil rights and for freedoms? Well, without any question, any kind of emergency measures giving government agencies the right to access um, private uh, information in this case the, the, your movements and the information on your phone it we're on this we're on the slippery slope there is some justification that uh, these measures these measures can save lives when people need to be told that that uh, they have to immediately go into quarantine because they've been in contact with someone carrying the virus um, but there are other ways of doing it which are less intrusive and I don't think enough has been done to pursue those ways I mean interestingly the government is is actually involved in a number of of uh, electronic surveillance me- methods some of them are not intrusive some of them are based on on you voluntarily downloading an app which uh, tracks your movements but you keep the data and, and it, it's not turned over to the government and there are there are online quest, uh, symptoms questionnaires, which are also voluntary and, non, and don't involve you sacrificing your, your privacy in any major way. Um, and the fact that they that they went also on this very intrusive uh, uh, system is, is certainly room for concern. There has been some level of parliamentary scrutiny rather belated over this, and, and it is being uh, monitored by the courts, but... It's always a slippery slope, no question about it. That was Anshel Pfeffer speaking over Skype. If you're interested in reading Anshel's recent columns on the outbreak in Israel, head over to foreignpolicy.com and look for today's show page where I've included links to them in the show notes. That's it for today. I'll be back with you next Monday with the first weekly episode of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands and don't touch your face.